Good morning once again. We are continuing in the book of Hebrews, and so today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. In chapter 7, the author of Hebrews is going to return to a thought that he began in chapter 5, and he had to kind of detour away uh, momentarily in chapter 6. Uh, And so in chapter 7, he picks up that thought and that purpose. And before we get into it, um, I feel like it's important for us to have a couple of of, of reminders of of who this book was originally written to, why these words would have mattered to them, and why they should matter to us. Uh, Because the whole purpose of chapter 7, really the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews, is to show the superiority of Jesus over everything, Okay. Um, the focus of chapter 7 is Jesus' superiority over the Levitical priesthood. Now, my guess is, if you're here at Calvary Restore Church in the year 2024, can you believe that? Uh, my guess is most of us probably don't struggle with this question of whether or not Jesus is better than a priest, right? Uh, my guess is most of you are here because in, in churches like ours, you know, that's like, okay, we've settled that. We've, that's established. No problems there. I have no temptation to return to Levitical priesthood. So why do we need to keep going through this? Like, why, why was this preserved for us? Okay. Um, and and there's, there's two main things I would ask you to do with that thought. The first is to, as best as we can, let's put ourselves into the minds and the, and the experiences of a first century Hebrew Christian. For a first century Hebrew Christian, we need to remember that they knew of no other way up to this point of drawing near to God. For generations, for centuries, in fact, it's not just their lives, it's the lives of their parents and their parents' parents and their ancestors. For centuries, they knew of no other way to draw near to the presence of God than through a representative, through a mediator, through a priest. Um, if, you, if you remember in the Old Testament, um, not just anyone can, can enter the presence of God, right? Only the high priest can do that, and he can only do it once per year. That's how holy and unapproachable God is. Um, and so uh, without a priest, without a mediator, without a representative uh, then there's, there's no, there, there is no connection with God. There is no opportunity for closeness, for, uh, for what, what even in the Old Testament we might call relationship, although it's different from what we think of now as relationship. And occasionally God breaks his own rules because he does that. He's God, that's his prerogative. Uh, occasionally he will come down and, and reveal himself to someone like a Moses or or like a Solomon in a vision, those kinds of things. But in general, for the average Jew, um, the priesthood is what holds your hope that God hears you, that God's aware of you, that there is some opportunity, however remote it might be, that you and God might have fellowship. And so we can understand, hopefully we can understand why letting go of that was such a big ask. Um, It was familiar, it was comfortable. It was, it was safety and security because how else can we possibly connect with the God that we worship if we don't have someone to represent us before him? 
We are unholy. We are unworthy. We are sinners. We are all these things. What are we going to do without a priest? Um, the, the, the illustration I thought of, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to enhance the point or minimize the point. I don't want to minimize the point. Um, but many of us grew up with um, you know, stuffed animals or blankets or pillows, and these are like our, like, our security, right? <laughs> um, some of us hang on to them longer than we should. Um, that's me. Uh, but I always think about, you know, in, in all the Snoopy cartoons, like Linus, right? He's always with his blanket, yeah? And maybe, I don't know, we have a lot of generations in this room, so some of you are like, yes, I remember, some of you, maybe not. But, like, like it, whenever Linus would be without his blanket, he was in a, he was in a panic. Like, he, he could not function unless he had that, that dirty old blanket draped across his shoulder, um, and anytime his older sister comes and tries to yank it away from him, he just freaks out and panics. There's no power in the blanket, right? Um, but that's his security. That's his safety. Um, in essence, the author of Hebrews, he's trying to be a little more gentle about it than Lucy would have been, but uh, he's trying to say, we, we need to let the blanket go. Okay? I get that the priesthood is, is what we, we think brings us security, and we think this, this is, our, this is what, what makes sure, this is how we make sure that God hears us. But, uh, but it's time for better things. It's time for a superior priesthood that actually predates the Levitical priesthood. And so uh, think about, as we go through this chapter, you know, think about it from their perspective, what they're being asked to do. And then the second thing I want you to think about is we're really not all that different from them. Because even though we don't struggle to let go of of an institution like a priesthood, there are still things that we struggle to let go of. And there are still things and sometimes people that we look to um, uh, to, to, to sort of uh, uh, not quite mediate, um, but sometimes our confidence in our faith is connected to another human being. Sometimes it's a spouse, yeah? Uh, sometimes in marriages or in relationships, there's like, there's, there's one spouse who, who feels really connected to, 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 to God, and, and, and they're like the driving force behind going to church and having prayer time and all. And, and the other spouse follows and agrees and, and, and isn't resisting, but, um, but the connection to God comes, from, comes mainly through one of them. And, and that personal connection to Jesus to say, whether my spouse goes or not, whether my spouse prays or not, um, I'm taking ownership of that for myself. Sometimes that's a struggle. And so when the, the on-fire spouse either, either has, has a rough season or, or has a crisis of faith, then it affects everything. Sometimes it's not a person. Sometimes it's, it's our own tradition. It's our own pattern of worship. Um, and when, and, and we, like, we like to pride ourselves in saying that, that we don't hang on to tr- traditions and that, you know, uh, that we're open to whatever God says. But in reality, when push comes to shove, if, when, when, when something is taken away from us that has become that security blanket, that's become what we've always known, um, we, we, we kind of like, we're, we, we, we tense up. We're like, oh, oh, I mean, we can, still, we can still worship without this. We can still spread the gospel without doing it this way. We can still have church without these things. Are we sure? You know, um, and that's, that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to guide the first century Jewish Christians through. So, yeah, um, I hope no one in here is still wrestling with whether or not we need a human priesthood in order to mediate between us and God. 
Um, but what else is it? Uh, what else gives your faith confidence and security that is not Jesus? Because Jesus is better. And connecting and pouring into intimacy with Jesus is going to be better than anything or anyone to give foundation and structure and confidence to your faith and your connection with God. And that's ultimately the point of this, okay? Um, and so as we dive in, there's going to be a lot of things that, that, that culturally feel distant to us that, uh, that the original readers of Hebrews would be worried about. And for us, we, we might think, well, that's not that big of a deal. But always remember the context and who it's written to and try to make that connection for how we struggle with similar things. There are three uh, important scriptures that, that are going to um, inform chapter 7 um, that we are going to be kind of flipping back and forth to. There, there's others as well. But the three main ones that you need to have in mind in order to fully understand uh, Hebrews chapter 7 is two chapters earlier in Hebrews chapter 5, and we'll go there in just a minute. Um, and then in Genesis 14, 18 through 20, we will be there also. So you may want to go ahead and kind of finger... Uh, or put your finger in that uh, in, in, in your Bibles. That's, uh, that's where we have the, the only narrative of this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. And then in Psalm 110, um, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 are the only places outside of this text where this mysterious man, Melchizedek, is mentioned. And yet the entire uh, argument that the author of Hebrews is about to make is based on him. So he's pretty important. First of all, let's, let's, let's backtrack two chapters. Go back to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, starting in verse 10, the author of Hebrews is saying, called by God, talking about Jesus, called by God as high priest, and then he quotes from Psalm 110, according to the order of Melchizedek of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So he says, I've got a lot to say about this Melchizedek guy, but, but it's going to be tough because you guys have a hard time, you guys are going to have a hard time receiving it. And so he has a detour for the whole of chapter six that, that Pastor Victor led us through last week. The whole reason pastor, or I'm sorry, the whole, the whole reason chapter six exists is because of that reason because the author of Hebrews says, we, like, Melchizedek is important um, to, to understand who Jesus is, but we have to reestablish the importance of not going back to Judaism. That's, if, if, if your heart is still given over to Judaism, if that's your security blanket, if you, um, if you feel like Jesus is not enough, uh, then we need to lay that foundation first before we can go to the more advanced teachings of Melchizedek. And and I want to remind us also that for the first century Jews, the ones who were tempted to go back to Judaism, the ones who were tempted to hang on to the Levitical priesthood, they weren't necessarily trying to replace Jesus with those things. They weren't saying, we're done with Jesus, we're going to go back to this. Some of them probably. Uh, most of them more likely were saying, Let, let's have both. Why, why not have both? Just in case, right? Just in case. We have Jesus and the Levitical priesthood. You know, we can have this new Christianity thing, and we can also hang on to Judaism. That way, you know, in case either one fails, you know, we have a safety net, right? Um, and, uh, and that's been the, the history of God's people for, since, since there's been God's people. That has been the challenge. In the Old Testament, it was always 
let's worship Yahweh God and Baal and Ashtoreth and all these other pagan gods. They, they never wanted to get rid of God. They always wanted to have a backup plan just in case. And again, Jesus is sufficient. There is no backup plan needed. And he says, in the commandments, you know, you shall have no other gods before me. And as Pastor Victor has said repeatedly over and over again, he doesn't mean before me in priority. He means before me in my presence. You don't need anyone else. You don't need anything else, any form of religion, any form of tradition. Um, it's Jesus, period, the end. And so, um, so the author of Hebrews has to go back and reestablish that. Um, that's why there's that kind of break and detour in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, starting in verse 1, he goes back, he returns to Melchizedek. Uh, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to him also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, remains a priest continually. We have more information about Melchizedek in those three verses than we have like in the entirety of the Old Testament. Um, so let's turn there and, and see what he's talking about. Uh, because in these first three verses, he is laying out some unique qualities about Melchizedek um, that uh, he's trying to relate back to, to Jesus. So go to Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 18. So here, here's, here's, here's some context. Um, Abraham's nephew Lot had chosen to go live in the land of Sodom because uh, their, their, their pasture lands were, were greener and, and more abundant, and he wanted his flocks to have better food to eat, I guess. Um, but Sodom, as we all know, Sodom was not a, a good place to live. Sodom was not the place to put down roots. Um, some, some, some bandits come, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, and they, they attack Sodom. They, they, they make off with, with all their treasure, and they take a lot of captives. And Lot and his family are among the captives taken by these bandits. And so Abraham mounts up his forces. He's going to go rescue his nephew and his nephew's family, um, and he goes and, and he, he fights with these bandits. He, he wins and uh, he rescues um, Lot. He rescues everyone from, who's taken from, from Sodom. Um, as, as the king of Sodom comes out, uh, he says to Abraham, in, in gratitude, he says, you can keep all the treasure, you can keep all the loot. Just, you know, if you could return my people, that'd be great. Abraham says to the king of Sodom, he says, uh, I don't want to take anything from your hand. Uh, because God has told me that like, no other human is going to make me wealthy. My, my wealth depends on God and God alone. So you can take back your treasure, take back your loot. I don't want it. And then right after that, this, this enigma, this man, out of, this, man, this man of mystery shows up named Melchizedek. And it says in chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. That should sound familiar to us bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. It's interesting that scripture so often does not, does, doesn't see fit to explain things to us. It just is. It just says, oh, and Melchizedek is here. He's 
these priests of God Most High. There, there was no priesthood at that time in Genesis. And um, very few people uh, had God revealed to himself as God Most High. Abraham was one of the few. But here's this guy, Melchizedek, showing up. We know that he's bringing out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. He was king of Salem. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, being Abraham, Abraham gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe or a tenth or a tribute from all of the treasure uh, that he had. Um, and so... A few things that we learn about Melchizedek from this chapter, from, from this passage in Genesis, as well as from what Hebrews tells us. Okay, the first thing is that he was both king and priest. This is, again, this is one of those things that might not sound super important to us, um, especially for Old Covenant believers, and, and it should be important for us. It absolutely should be important for us. Because God had forbidden any human being to, to carry both positions of authority. You could not be both king and priest in God's kingdom. It was, it was not allowed. Priests, uh, Levites were not allowed to own land. They were not allowed to have uh, their own ancestral land that, went on, that, that was passed on from, from generation to, to generation. Um, they were not allowed to, um, to, to have civil authority. Uh, they had authority over the temple and over the worship. Kings were not allowed to offer sacrifices in the temple at all. Um, they were not allowed to burn incense. There are, there are at least two occasions in the Old Testament where an Israelite king tries to do so, and it goes poorly for him. Uh, the first one we think about is Saul. Saul's first big major mistake was he didn't, he didn't want to wait for Samuel to come and offer a sacrifice. He was desperate because he was in the middle of battle. And he's like, well, we got to do it now. And I am king, so I'm the king. I'm going to do it now. Um, for that one mistake, for j just for not waiting for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifices, God says, now I've rejected you as king because you have taken upon yourself both civil authority, civil leader, and spiritual leader. The second one is a little more dramatic. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verses 16 through 21, this one's sad uh, because it deals with King Uzziah. And King Uzziah was generally a good king. Uh, the Bible speaks highly of him and his faithfulness to God. But it also says in 2 Chronicles 26, starting in verse 16, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. So he grew proud. He grew a little arrogant. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, and they withstood King Uzziah. That took a lot of courage to stand up to the king. And said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. And if you remember, or maybe you don't remember, but in the tabernacle, and then later on in the temple, which this would have been in the temple, there's the outer court where the uh, sacrifices are made. Um, there's the holy place inside the actual temple where the priests would go. There'd be, um, there'd be the, the lampstand. There'd be the table of showbread where the priest would eat. And there'd be this altar of incense. It wasn't the most holy place. It was just the holy, just the holy place. Uh, the priest would burn incense. 
um, those, that incense represented prayers. And, and before he could enter into the most holy place to be in the presence of God, he would have to burn incense uh, as a sweet-smelling aroma to God. God likes potpourri. Um, king Uzziah, for whatever reason, thought, well, I've, I've been a pretty good king. I've led some reforms. I've brought people back to, to Jehovah God. Um, I'm going to go in there and offer incense. And uh, we don't, other than the pride of his heart, we don't know what he's thinking. We, why would you do that? But, um, the priest, uh, Uzziah, this is wrong. He says, no, no, like you are trespassing. You should not be in this place. You're the king. It is for the priests who have been consecrated. That word means set apart. God's the one who chose us to do this, not you. Uzziah is, is belligerent and arrogant. It says in verse 19 of 2 Chronicles 26, then Uzziah became furious. And he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. He's, he's holding the censer to burn the incense. And while he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him. And there in his forehead, he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. So as soon as he realized what was going on, leprosy is developing right there. The priests are, are shooing him out, but they, they don't have to. He's running out himself in fear and like realizing what he's done. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in isolation. He, he dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. It's one of the, one of the more tragic stories of the kings of Judah because, again, Uzziah had been a, a godly king up to that point. What led him down that path is the very reason why God says, why God forbids the, the combining of those two positions of authority. It doesn't take much, does it, for the human heart to get puffed up. It doesn't take a whole lot of power or influence or position for us to start buying into our own hype, for us to think, I, hey, I'm, I'm not that bad. I, I really am, you know, pretty good or, you know, whatever we might think. Um, and... And power corrupts the human, the broken human form so easily and so readily. Only Jesus is able and, and, and allowed, but only Jesus is able to hold both positions over us in holiness, in purity, and in righteousness. Only Jesus can be both priest and king. And he is both priest and king. So Melchizedek, it just so happens, it's also called both priest and king. Um, he is, it says, king of Salem and priest of the most high God. Um, this title, king of Salem, is another interesting thing. Um, the Hebrew word Salem doesn't appear very often in the Old Testament, but a word very similar to it does. It's got the same, uh, the same meaning, the same root form of shalom. And, and we, we all know that shalom means peace. Uh, and so he is... He is the, I mean, it says he's the king of Salem. It's talking about a place, but it literally means king of, of peace. Because uh, Salem, like Shalom, means peace. Also interesting, um, and, and commentators and uh, theologians are, are, aren't, aren't sure about this, uh, but Salem also shares the root word with another location later on in the Old Testament, Jerusalem. Or we just said Jerusalem. Um, and Jerusalem means teachings of peace. So it is 
highly possible that Melchizedek, before Jerusalem became the capital of Israel, before there was a nation of Israel, when it says Melchizedek is the king of Salem, it's very possible that he is king in what would later become Jerusalem, because uh, it's the same root word there, uh, which, which makes this comparison all the more interesting between Melchizedek and Jesus. Uh, and then it says that his name itself, it says in verse, uh, verse 2, that also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, I'm sorry, no, before that, um, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness. So not only is he king of, of peace, the name Melchizedek itself means king of righteousness. So like Jesus, Melchizedek, in a sense, uh, he is king of peace and he is king of righteousness. Although the order is reversed. He's king of righteousness first because the order matters. We're, we're going to see that the order matters He's king of righteousness and king of peace. In Isaiah chapter 32, we're going to see why that order matters. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 16, it says, Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness, or the fruit of righteousness, will be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. So we can only have peace with God because of the righteousness of our high priest. Without righteousness, there can be no peace. Um, if, if our mediator, if, if our priest doesn't come before the Father in righteousness, then then how can he mediate for us? That's why in the Old Testament, the, uh, the high priest had to be cleaned thoroughly. He had, to, he had to be ritually purified from head to toe. And that's why he would go and burn incense. And that's why they would tie that rope around his ankle, just in case he wasn't righteous enough, you know, and God struck him dead. Um, because without righteousness, there is no peace. There's only death, right? So righteousness comes first, and then peace. Melchizedek is king of righteousness, he is king of peace. And guess what? Jesus is also king of righteousness and king of peace. The last thing we read about Melchizedek in these first three verses, this is an interesting part. And interpreters are kind of divided over how we should interpret this. So I'm going to give you both versions, and then you can figure it out. Okay? Um, the first, and so go down to verse three again, talking about Melchizedek. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. He's talking about not Jesus there. He's talking about Melchizedek. But made like the Son of God, that's Jesus, who remains a priest continually. So there's two ways to understand this. One is that, uh, that Melchizedek very literally had no father, no mother, no genealogy, no ancestors, no, no descendants, and that, um, that he remains a priest continually, which would mean, which would make him what we call a Christophany. That is, an Old Testament uh, incarnated appearance of Jesus himself. So in a nutshell, the first view is that Melchizedek was actually Jesus, um, showing up in the Old Testament, just, you know. Um, and for some reason, he's Melchizedek and not Jesus. Um, which makes a lot of sense. And, and, um, and the way the text is written, that, that, that seems to be... Um, that seems to be the, the easy reading, the intended reading. Um, 
The other possibility is that when the author of Hebrews says that he has no genealogy, no father, no mother, and all those things, he's referring to how nothing else is just known about him, that Melchizedek was, in fact, an actual human. He wasn't Jesus. He, wasn't, he was not a Christophany. He was a type of Christ. He was a precursor of Christ. He was a, 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 a mold that Jesus would later on fulfill. He was still human, but the reason why, why we have nothing else written about him, even though he, he did have human parents, we just don't know who they are, because he's meant to be a picture of Jesus, right? So either, either he was Jesus or he points to Jesus. Um, I think either view has, has its merit, and I don't feel strongly at one way or the other. The point, though, the point is that, um, is that, is that he sets that mold as, um, as priest that Jesus would fulfill. Jesus has, um, he has a father, right? Uh, but he doesn't have a human father in that sense, right? He has no genealogy, he has no one, um, no one over him because in the Old Testament and, and even in the New Testament, when you would introduce someone, you would, you would usually say, you know, your name, son of, and then you would give your ancestry, right? Joshua, son of Nun, right? You see that all over the place in the Old Testament. We don't have that about Melchizedek, right? He's just, he is who he is. Um, this is important uh, because um, he is presented as being in a position of superiority over the patriarch Abraham. Now, I've never been to Mount Rushmore. How many of you have been to Mount Rushmore? Yeah? Does it look cool? Like, if you see that picture, like, do you, like, do you get it? You know, like, you have to, like, be there to see it. There are some things it's like, well, you can just see the picture, and it's the same. I don't know. Um, you know, we have our Mount Rushmore, right? Uh, these are, like, the, the four um, <clears throat> fathers of our nation that we think of as, like, these are the guys, and I know, like, in sports, this happens sometimes. I don't know if it's all sports. I know, like, in basketball, they're always talking about who's, who's, like your, who's on your Mount Rushmore basketball players. I don't know if that happens for other sports, but everyone's like, it's got to be. Yeah, it's got to be Jordan. It's got to be. And after that, it's, everyone argues about it. Like, is it Kobe? Is it LeBron? Neither of them. What do you do? I think it's generational. It depends on where you, when you're born. If, if the Israelites had a Mount Rushmore, um, then, then you would have Moses... Over and over again, uh, the Jews are asking Jesus, are you better than Moses? Because Moses brought the law. So you'd have Moses. You'd have Elijah probably because Elijah uh, never saw death. He just stopped. Like God just took him up in the chariot of fire. He never died. And he called down fire from heaven. And, you know, he um, was used by God to, to, to turn kings away. So you'd have Moses. You'd have Elijah. You'd probably have David on there. Like, you have King David, right? David. And then you'd have Abraham. Right, and that's like their, that would be their Mount Rushmore. Um, if any of those guys is superior or seen as superior to Jesus in any way, it does not, then, then, then there is a, a, a faulty view of Christ. None of them can be superior to Jesus in any way. And, and indeed, in Jesus' earthly life, he was constantly having to, he didn't have to compete with them. I doubt he felt like he had to compete with them. But everyone else put this pressure on him to, to, to compete with those guys. Um, and so the author of Hebrews is being very intentional in, in showing here's Melchizedek and here's Abraham. And one is clearly superior to the other. And we're going to get into more to show why. Jesus is here. Judaism, Levitical priesthood, everything else is here. We have, Jesus has to be superior. If he's anything at all, he has to be superior. Otherwise, 
He is no hope. Um, He says, now consider in verse four, now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. So again, he's talking about Melchizedek. Think about how great he would have had to have been. Even our Mount Rushmore uh, ancestor, Abraham, gave him a tenth of the spoils. He gave him a tithe. He gave him a tribute. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is from their, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. I'm going to explain all this in a minute, hopefully. Uh, Even Levi, who receives tithes, pay tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So uh, there's a lot to unpack there. And again, there's a lot there that that, uh, to our 21st century sensibilities makes, it doesn't seem like it's all that important. Some of it doesn't even make sense. So let's try and break it down a little bit. First of all, in verse four, he brings up how Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe or a tenth of, 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 of his treasure. Um, a, a tithe is a form of tribute. Usually, there's only two reasons why you would give another ruler or another king or another person in authority a tribute. Uh, the first reason is if they had conquered you. If they were, were stronger and more powerful, and part of you being allowed to live is that you agree to pay them tribute. And so that's the peace treaty. You let me live, and I'll give you money. Right? And so you would pay tribute to a superior force uh, who had conquered your nation. And if you didn't pay on time, you know, and we're familiar with this. <laughs> if you don't pay on time, someone comes for you. Um, if you don't pay your tribute, then, then the conquering king returns, and he's going to get it one way or the other. So the first way, it's coerced, it's forced, it's, it's under military subjugation. The second reason you would pay tribute would be willingly, of your own free will, when you would encounter another ruler or authority who was just clearly superior in some way, and you were in awe of that superiority and his power, his wealth, or whatever it was, and in acknowledgement and in honoring of that superiority, you would, of your own free will, give a gift to say, you are worthy of this, and in some way, I want to be tied to you because you are clearly superior. The example of this in the Old Testament is, is King Solomon. Um, we are told in, 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 in 1 Kings that, that rulers and authorities and kings from all over would come and visit Solomon. They would bring him tribute. Now, Solomon was not a military man uh, that we know of. We don't have any record of his, of his battles or wars. So he didn't fight him. Some of that tribute was probably left over from what his father David had, had set up. A lot of that we read people would bring just because of how, how in awe of him they were. We read that they would sit and hear his wisdom, and they're like, oh, wow, here, have some gold, you know, or here, have some random exotic animals. Uh, and, uh, and that was their, their tribute to Solomon, acknowledging and honoring his, his worth and his glory. Um, and so uh, which one's being talked about here, right? Um, Abraham offers a tribute to Melchizedek. Melchizedek doesn't ask for it. Uh, he's, not, um, he's not conquering Abraham. He's not demanding it. Um, Abraham sees something in Melchizedek that inspires him that 
that overwhelms him and moves him to pay tribute to this mysterious man he's never met before, and as far as we know, never sees again. Um, so the author of Hebrews, his point is that, that Melchizedek would have had to have been superior to Abraham for Abraham to willingly offer him tribute. Okay? And then he says, and he's, he's, he's anticipating a little bit of resistance and argument from his readers, because they might say, well, yeah, but our, our priests received tribute and tithes from the people. Uh, just because Melchizedek received the tribute doesn't make him all that great. Our Levites also received tributes and tithes. And so the author of Hebrews says, yes, indeed, um, those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is from their brethren, uh, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. His, his, his point is, yeah, but uh, you might say the Levites also received tithes, but that's commanded. Um, that's, that's part of the law. No other... Jew is going around saying, wow, these Levites, they're so amazing. I'm so inspired by them. I'm so, I, just, I just want to give them tribute just, just, to, just to honor their superiority. Um, the author of Hebrews is saying, that's not what's happening for us. We pay tribute because we have to, because God commanded. And it's from peer to peer. He says they, they're receiving uh, tribute from their own brothers, from their own Jewish brothers, um, and all of whom were in the loins of Abraham, is a funny way to put it, but he does. Um, the tribute Melchizedek receives is not forced, it's not commanded, it's an act of worship. It's an act of free will worship. And it says, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. We say bless you all the time. Someone sneezes, bless you. You know, um, you see people with signs, you know, um, and, and, you know, sometimes when, when, they're, um, when they're panhandling or begging for money, a lot of times you'll see, oh, and God bless. Um, or uh, I have that as like the, on my, my email, right before my signature, I'm email, blessings. You know. um, we just kind of use that word a lot. Uh, in, in ancient thought, uh, you, like, not just anyone can bless you. If someone is inferior to inferior to you in some way, the thought is, how, how could, what blessing could they offer me? In the Old Testament, very often, most of the time, most of the time, when you see a blessing being given, it is from someone in a position of authority giving it to someone uh, in, in, in a lower place, in a lower position of authority. Um, otherwise, the thought was, otherwise, what, what good is your blessing if, if I don't need you for anything? If I'm in a position over you, then, then how are you going to bless me, right? And so without argument, the author of Hebrews says, it's, 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 it's obvious, we all understand this, without contradiction, the lesser is always blessed by the greater. Again, he's just reinforcing over and over again, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and the only reason why that matters, the only reason why Abraham was willing to receive that, because he acknowledges that Melchizedek was in some way superior to him, Okay. And then, uh, and then there's this really um, kind of confusing thing he says in verse 8. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. What that means is, and he's going to return to this point a couple more times, uh, Levites were just human. They were mortal men. They lived and they died. In the passage in Psalms that we're going to look at, um, it says that, that the Messiah, the coming King, the Lord, um, uh, is a priest in the order of Melchizedek forever. 
And so the author of Hebrews says, our brothers are, who receive tithes, they're just mortals. They're going to they're gonna die. We're going to need to replace them. We're going to need to retrain new priests. We're going to have to uh, make sure that they're not, you know, faltering in their job or slacking off. Um, but this one, this priest, um, he continues to mediate for us forever. On, he's, he's not mortal. He's immortal. He lives forever. Um, and so that was his point there. And he'll, he'll return to that again later. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. I always found this funny. You know, this, this logic probably wouldn't hold up uh, to us because we think about it differently. Uh, but again, in the first century mind, um, respect and shame, uh, you have to deal with those things uh, genealogically. Respect is passed down. If your ancestor has a position of, 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 of reverence and respect, and you say, yeah, that's my, that's my granddaddy, you know, whatever, then, then, then you're automatically associated with that. Oh, then we will respect you too. If, if shame is passed down, um, you know, from your ancestors, then you have to deal with that as well. You have to do something. You have to do some kind of amazing act to overcome family shame, right? So respect and shame are big deals, and it's passed down through the family. And so um, standing, what, your, your, your social standing, your... your um, you're standing in respect. And so when he says, in a sense, Levi himself pays tribute to, to Melchizedek because his great-grandfather Abraham is the one who, who does it. So that, that acknowledging of who Melchizedek is, that paying of tribute in, in the Hebrew's mind, that, that's passed down legally even to Levi, even though he wasn't even a, you know, a glimmer in Abraham's eye at that point. Um, so again, over and over again, Melchizedek, the, the, the priestly order of Melchizedek is superior to that of the Levites. Um, verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, here's what he's saying. If, if the law, if the human priesthood could truly perfect our relationship with Jesus, if that, if that was truly the path, that was truly the answer, um, for under it, people received the law. You say, that's, that's where we got the law from. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? So let's look at this passage in Psalm, uh, Psalm 104, because that's what he's going to start quoting here. I'm not, I'm not Psalm 104, I'm sorry, Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, I'll read the whole thing. Uh, it's a short one. This is, this is uh, a messianic prophecy that the Holy Spirit gives to David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Um, we're not going to turn there, but Jesus refers to that passage in Matthew 22 um, when, uh, when the Pharisees are questioning him again. And, and he brings him back to this passage, and he says, you know, why would David say, uh, the Lord said to my Lord? And David's acknowledging that, the, that when, the, when the Messiah comes, when the Lord comes, um, David's calling him Lord. So uh, he, he, the, the Messiah is superior even to David. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. 
Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. Here it is. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. He's not going to change his mind. The Lord is taking an oath. This is a permanent, eternal oath. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. All right, this is a thousand years after Abraham meets Melchizedek. There's nothing mentioned about him in those thousand years. And then David, out of nowhere, um, writes a song about him and says, when the Messiah comes, when the Christ comes, uh, God has said, God's taken an oath. He has promised that when the Messiah comes, he will be of the order of Melchizedek. Um, and so the author of Hebrews says, if the Levitical order is so great, why would David say that? And why wouldn't he say, according to the order of Levi or according to the order of, of Aaron? If it works, it would not need to be replaced. But we've been told from, from, from years ago that it's going to be replaced. So the author of Hebrews is using Hebrew scripture to try and convince Hebrew Christians, again, that Jesus is superior. Okay, let's go back to our passage in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7. Okay, so yeah, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek? Let's go down to verse 12. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the next resistance or argument that the author of Hebrews anticipates is, okay, okay, I hear you, I get it. Uh, Jesus is, 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 is a great guy. You know, he's a great priest. He, he's eternal. He's, he's the Christ. He's the one promised. Um, I, I get it that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, but the law states, the law states that, that our priests have to be from Levi. So that's the argument that the author of Hebrews is trying to get, a, trying to get ahead of. Um, we bind ourselves to documents sometimes, even, even in the church. We bind ourselves to these, these, these hard and fast, but, but, but the law says this. And so um, if, if you're going to be legalistic about it, then, then Jesus is disqualified from any form of priesthood because in their law, the priest has to be, like, regardless of anything else. Okay, okay, whoever wrote this, okay, I hear you. Again, all these qualifications, all these qualities, all these amazing things about Jesus, I see that, I agree with it, but the law says what the law says. So, you know, we can't, I'm sorry, you know. Um, <clears throat> so what the author says next is, look, if we're talking about a different priesthood that didn't come from our law, then it makes complete sense that we'd be talking about an entirely different law as well. A law, by the way, which predates the law that you're so hooked on. Because if you know your history, you know that Abraham came a long time before Moses did. And Moses is the one who brought the law. So that's why that's what he's saying there is that if there's a new priesthood, then, then by necessity. But the logical conclusion is there would also be a different law entirely that this... Because Jesus, we, we, he says, we know that Jesus is from the tribe of, of Judah. We know he's not a Levite. And that's okay 
uh, because this is an entirely different way to mediate. The old way didn't work. Why would you bind yourselves to that? Why would you be so fixated on your tradition and, and your legal documents and all these things? Don't you see that it's failing you? It's failing you. And, and, and here's someone that God has said from the beginning, from before all those things, he said he's coming and he is superior. He offers a superior hope. That's what he says next. He says in verse 18, for on the one hand, there is an, an, an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness for the law made nothing perfect. So he says, first of all, yes, we are annulling that. Uh, that's gone. It wasn't working. We're going to annul the former commandment because it was weak. It didn't work. It made nothing perfect. And then he says, on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So which would you rather have? Your laws and your traditions and your rules? Would you rather have a hope that works? A hope that does not disappoint? Because that's Jesus. And in as much as he was not made priest without an oath, again, he's talking about the oath God made in Psalm 110, you know, I, forever you will be a priest, according to Melchizedek. And as much as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. He, he's bringing in uh, a better priesthood, a better law, a better hope, a better covenant, a better promise. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. And the author of Hebrews is really, really fixated on this, like, Jesus doesn't die thing for good reason. This is, I think, the fourth time he's brought it up. Again, like, people die, humans die, Jesus doesn't, okay? And, um, and we might read that and think, well, how do you know he doesn't die? Don't forget, this book was written uh, when many of the people who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection were still alive. Many of the people whom Jesus appeared to after his crucifixion were still living and breathing and going to churches. And if they had read this and, and they had a disagreement with it, then they would have said something. So it's not just, you know, the, 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 the author of Hebrews isn't just saying, take my word for it. He's saying, you're surrounded by witnesses in your churches, in, in, in your daily lives who testify that Jesus came back to life, that they saw him with their own eyes. And if that many people are lying at once, then I mean, that, that takes a lot of coordination, okay? Um, we know that Jesus is, is alive, um, and so his priesthood continues to live on. His priesthood is forever. We never have to, to, to wait for another replacement. We never have to wait for, for it to, 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 to get better. It's as good as it's going to get because Jesus lives forever, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests and men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever." We know that the Jews were accustomed to what we talked about earlier. A lot of their priests had become corrupt. A lot of their priests were getting really chummy with the Romans. A lot of their priests were 
We're double dipping in the tithe box or we're, we're, we're cheating them at the temple tax with the coins and, and all this stuff. But they were accustomed to priests who had forsaken holiness, who had forsaken uh, purity uh, in pursuit of worldly treasure and worldly comfort. And so the testimony of Jesus is that he is holy. He's harmless. Um, not that he's, we can take that word the wrong way, but that he doesn't intend harm to us. He's not going to exploit us. He's not going to take advantage of us. Undefiled. He's not going to be defiled by ambition or by wealth or by bribes. Separate from sinners. Not in the sense that we can't, that, that, that sinners can't approach him, but in the sense that he's not going to, uh, going to again, take, take bribes. He's, uh, he's not going to become chummy-chummy with the world around him at the expense of holiness and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests offer up sacrifices. They would need to do it every day. They need to make sure I'm clean, make sure I'm pure, make sure I haven't sinned again. And then if, if they have to do that every day, then there's an, an, an implied lack of confidence. What if I bring my offering to the priest, and maybe he hasn't washed the right way today? Is my prayer going to be heard? What? What if he missed something? What if, what if the priest is, is, had missed his daily prayers? Or what if he doesn't burn the incense right? Will God hear my prayers? Um, we don't have to worry about those things because Jesus always is. He's never not. Uh, he always is. And his priesthood, his, his ministry on our behalf to the Father remains eternal and constant. And so um, in the next chapter... We're not going to get into you today. But you can see in verse 1 of chapter 8, he says, now this is the main point. And so, so in the next chapter, he's going to bring all this together and saying, you know, here's why this is important. We'll, do, we'll worry about that next week. Um, again, for us, uh, as, we, as we wrap up this morning, we, we need to ask ourselves, what, what things do we hang on to? You know, what are those security blankets? What are the things that we... We're so uncomfortable to let go of. Um, and, and what's it going to take for us to realize that Jesus is better? You know, um, pouring into Jesus, pursuing Jesus is always going to be superior to anything else, any other form of religion, any other form of tradition. And, and even the relationships that we've come to depend on, the people in our lives that we say, well, I, I'm, I'm not super confident in, in, in my own faith or in my own belief, but, but this person is, so I'm just going to, you know, make sure that I'm with them. That's okay. That's okay to start with. Eventually, it's got to be you and Jesus. Eventually, no one else can mediate, minister on your behalf better than Jesus. Now, God's put people in our lives who will do that, I mean, we, we ask people to pray for us all the time. That's good, and that's right, and that's what the community of faith is, is all about, lifting each other up, supporting. But no one can, can speak to God for you better than Jesus. So get to know Jesus first. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would reveal mysteries to us. I pray that... Uh, as we look into these things, that, that so, so many of them are, are so culturally removed, so culturally distant from where we are now, that sometimes making those bridges of connection uh, can be difficult. But Lord, you have preserved this word for a reason. Uh, these aren't just arbitrary 
words written 2,000 years ago that we just read. Lord, you desire for us to read these, to study them, to learn from them, to be molded and shaped by them for some reason. Uh, Lord, thank you that... um, Thank you that you have done that. I pray for, for wisdom. Uh, I pray for discernment. I pray for open hearts. I pray that we would allow ourselves to be vulnerable to you, to, uh, to lay bare before you those areas, those things that for us would be similar to the Levitical priesthood. For us, um, these are the things or the people that give us confidence in our faith, and they are inferior. They are deficient. They don't compare to, to, to Jesus. Father, would you reveal those to us? Uh, would you tear down the things that need to be torn down? Um, would you bring uh, more and more awareness of, of Christ's presence with us, of our death with him on the cross and our life with him in resurrection? Uh, Lord, I pray that you would bring our glory to yourself in these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.